Hello, everyone. Uh, happy Friday or happy Saturday to some of you. Welcome to the weekly show of What is School for? My name is I. I'm the host of this weekly live streaming show. And you can also listen to us on the traditional audio-only podcast. Just search What is School for? on iTunes, Spotify, and different places. On this show, I interview leading educators, teachers, education professionals, parents, students, entrepreneurs, education leaders, business leaders to come here to discuss, debate, and disrupt education. Our goal is to future-proof the next generation. And join me live today is my dear friend, Lisa Avery. And Lisa is a positive psychology expert. And uh, she is a certified positive psychologist. That's her educational background. And she has been doing this for quite a few years and works with schools, individuals, and different uh, corporate sectors. And she has been working with quite a few big name household brands. And uh, she's also, Lisa is also a digital mentor at Classroom Without Wars. She came to speak uh, to my students a few months ago, and we just love her. So we're all in for a treat. And today we're discussing positive psychology and how we can apply positive psychology to parenting so that we can raise confident and competent children. I'm really excited about this topic, and you are going to walk away with a much better understanding of what is positive psychology. And we are going to learn a very unique uh, framework, uh, P uh, Prima, right? I hope I said it correctly. And that's Lisa's framework, and we're going to learn that framework. And we're going to give you lots of specific ideas, uh, resources, and uh, exercises that you can apply, you can implement at home or in the classroom to help you raise the next generation. And we're live on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on YouTube, on Periscope, on Twitch. And let me know where you guys are joining us live from, social media wise and geographically speaking. So excited to see you all. And uh, also this show is sponsored by StreamYard. And over the last three years, I have tried so many I don't even remember how many third-party tools to go live. And StreamYard is my personal favorite. It is so easy to use, and uh, they have excellent customer service. So definitely check them out. And thank you so much to StreamYard for sponsoring Classroom Without Wars. Anyway, without any further ado, Lisa, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Hi. It's so lovely to see you again. It's great to be back here having these conversations uh, around positive psychology. As you mentioned, I did work with your students and it was such an incredible experience. And I guess it brought home the fact that people do really resonate with positive psychology, no matter what age, what gender, and what kind of life experience. There's something for everyone in this science. And so it's really exciting to be back with you. So thank you. Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah, this is something that I definitely don't know much about. And I definitely want to learn more about. And some of the questions I'm going to ask you today are some of the questions that I personally struggle as a mom and also as an educator running my own school. So I'm, I'm super excited. But before we dive into the specifics, share with us what inspires you to like pursue a career in positive psychology? What is your story? 
Okay, so about 10 years ago, I was working in Barcelona and I was teaching in different places. And it was about the time that the first International Congress of Coaching Psychology was being held in Barcelona. And I was um, appointed to translate, to interpret between some of these psychologists from different parts of the world. And at that moment, I really didn't know anything about this world, but I was absolutely struck I, by the, the sense of my goodness, shouldn't this be my life? Isn't this the exact kind of subject that sets me on fire that I'm really passionate about? So within the conference of those few days, I became very determined to get a bit of an education in this. So then I went back to university and I did my three years master's in positive psychology and coaching psychology. And uh, yeah, and I had no idea what was going to happen after that, if I'm honest. Because, you know, positive psychology, it's about 25 years old. But, you know, 10 years ago, it was still relatively new. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So I had no idea how it would unfold. But like some of those moments in life, there's just this kind of blind faith. You just think that something's right here and I've got to pursue it. And if I don't pursue it, I'm going to always wonder what if, which I think is the worst feeling in the world. So that's the story <laughs> that is so interesting i didn't know positive psychology is only like two decades plus old and i thought it was much much longer so share with us what's the definition when you are talking about positive psychology mm -hmm. i feel like there are so many positive right positive this positive that yes. so we are talking about positive psychology what exactly do you mean so that everyone can be on the same page Brilliant. So positive psychology, it's defined as a science, the, so the empirically researched science um, of optimal human functioning. So there are really two sides to the positive psychology coin. One side, it's really looking to enhance what is already working. So looking to enhance a person's strengths, talents, passions, positive relationships, moments of flow. So they get more and more of these things. And the other side, it's really looking, this is second wave positive psychology. It's really looking at how to become more resilient, how to become more emotionally agile, how to really mm. transcend adversity in difficult times and even find meaning through those difficult times. And I think it's really interesting that you touch on the fact that you weren't aware it was 25 years old. It, it is 25 years old approximately around that because it was Martin Seligman. He is the king. He's the godfather of positive psychology. And it, it was his turn to be the president of APA. And at that moment, he decided that psychology had spent too long looking at what was wrong with people. <laughs> and wasn't it time to actually turn things around and ask, well, actually, what can go right with people? And how can we get more of that? So, you know, clinical psychology looked to take people from minus 10 to zero. But we found that once people got to zero, it didn't make them happy. It didn't give them these instantly fulfilling lives. So the idea of positive psychology was to take people from zero to plus 10 and think about what an like. I, I I just love it. I just feel like I don't know if anyone we have quite a few people live with us already. Did you guys notice like Lisa is just like full of positive, you know, energy? Uh, when I was selecting like digital mentors for classroom without words. I got so hundreds of people approaching me. But Lisa, her energy was just like, yes, you are you. I don't know much about positive psychology, but you feel so positive to me. 
which is really interesting. So like for positive psychology, you know, as you mentioned, and you really focus on what is working, what is positive. So I want to actually have a few questions surrounding this. And of course, I want to know, you know, what are the benefits of focusing on our stress, what is working? And also a very um, like a puzzling question for me is why it is so hard for us to focus on strength, especially if you are a mom or a dad, a parent, and we have like, you know, amplifying magnifying glasses to look at weakness and strength is, oh, okay, you're good, but we don't really pay that much attention. So can you explain the benefits and why it is so challenging to do this? That is an absolutely brilliant question, I, and I think it's a perfect place to start this exploration of what positive psychology is, because the idea is human beings have something known as the negativity bias of the brain. And this means that no matter what's going on in life, if there's good and if there's something a little bit bad, we're always going to focus on the bad, on the negative. So for example, you know, your child gets three pieces of positive feedback from their teacher, but one piece of negative or room for improvement feedback, it's really likely that as a parent, you will hone in on the negative, let's say. And that is because the brain has evolved to protect us, you know, we're wired for survival and not necessarily happiness. The negative is that which can endanger our emotional, physical or psychological survival. So we will always be attentive to that. And what happens is when we experience a negative emotion, we get this tunnel vision, we literally lose our peripheral vision. So positive emotions, they actually make us see the whole picture, literally and metaphorically. Whereas negative emotions, they give us this tunnel vision and the negativity bias does exactly that. You know, it makes us see that which is wrong to the detriment of everything that's positive. And often there's so much more which is positive. And that's when the strength approach really comes in, which is what you mentioned here. Well, that is uh, very interesting. So are you saying that the, the fact that we tend to focus more on negativity is our brain or our body's way to protect us right from like oh wow that is really interesting so it's almost like the reptilian brain right absolutely Absolutely. You, you know we had to survive we needed to survive and the purpose of negative emotions in general it's to make us stop see what is straight in front of us and react accordingly to that threat the brain hasn't really changed all that much. And we now, as human beings, we need to become mindful of this innate tendency, of this natural tendency, because within that awareness, we then have the power to control. And we, you, you know, it's that thing, isn't it, from CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Every time we have a thought, we have a feeling which leads to a behavior, a certain kind of behavior. If we have that awareness, we can intercept this cycle at any moment. So the key is really becoming aware to what we're thinking, what we're feeling, and what we're doing. Yeah, I, I still remember, I don't know which grade, but like there was one teacher started asking me, hey, I, what are you really good at? I, I literally like just paused. I, I really mm. had to think if the teacher were to ask me what I'm so bad at, I can immediately give a list because that's what I, I'm hearing from my parents, from my other teachers all the time. So here is a very uh, powerful, um, insightful comment from Phil, and thank you for joining us live. It's, uh, he made a really great point because 
we are often told that a weakness is something that must be improved, right? And even now, as a mom, when my children were younger, I, I don't feel much about this. But now as they are older, I feel like, yeah, I see weaknesses in them. I, I feel like I need to help them to improve, right? So even in interviews for athletes and great point, Phil, you know, we feel the pressure to really look at those weaknesses and do something about it. Very interesting. So this is actually kind of one of my question and my personal struggle as a mom and an educator. So I see weaknesses in my students all the time, but I also see their strengths, right? I know exactly ways that they need to improve, things that they need to work on, and also in my own children. So how can I discipline them or help them improve without hurting their self-confidence? their identity, right? You don't want your children to develop a, a label, which I think is what the traditional education is so good at, right? We label the kid, you are a good student, you are a C student, you are just like stupid, math is so bad. Like, I don't want to do that. But at the same time, I feel like a need to help the students improve. So what what's your take on this? How can we apply positive psychology to work on this really messy situation in my mind. I, I absolutely agree with everything you're saying. I And I think this is a really important question to ask. As you say, really sadly, the kind of words we hear at school can become self-fulfilling prophecies for so many people. And I think teachers have a real responsibility in how they use this kind of language because it can stay with us for a very, very, very long time. Forever. Now, Forever and ever, absolutely. Even as grown-ups, you know, it's it's terrible. You know, you have to be very, very careful. Language is powerful. So in answer to your question, I think there are two things we've really got to think about. I think really beginning to generate a language around strengths is really important. That's the first thing. Really creating a strong awareness of what character strengths are. And some of the people watching might be aware, I know that you are I, that if you want to find out your character strengths, you can go to VIA, which is Values in Action, Signature Strand Survey, and that is at the University of Pennsylvania's website. I guess we can provide the links later. Um, and you take a, quite a long questionnaire, but at the end of that questionnaire, you get a breakdown of your 24 universal character strands. Now, every human being owns these strengths, but to very different degrees and in a very different order, okay? So the idea is that your top five or six strengths are known as your signature strengths. And these are the strengths that make you as unique as your own personal signature. And the idea is if you can really harness, if you can really begin to use these strengths, you're gonna have more success, more happiness, more well-being in every aspect of life. There's also a version for young people, which is a shorter version. So I highly recommend parents and young people take this survey to get an idea of what kind of strengths exist. Because until we've got a word for something, until we've got the language for something, it's very difficult to fully understand it. And if we don't understand something, it's very difficult to begin to use it or to begin to change it in any way. So first comes the understanding, the language, the recognition. And later, I think we can look for ways to begin to work with our strengths. And there are quite a lot of activities around this, which I'm happy to share at any point. Um, wow, that's great. So like I just shared uh, uh, the link, uh, value in action. 
So I think you know we we can do this、uh, with our children, right? And if they can read, they can do this. On is there an ideal age to do this survey? Or well, any- I think you know, sort of children nine, ten, eleven. I mean, you can do this at any age, but I think around this age you can begin to take the survey. For younger children, you can buy strengths cards. There are games. There's a lot you can do. But the key is beginning to give language. You know, to put some language to this, so that children begin to recognize it in themselves. And in others, and so that you can begin to have conversations. Because what I was going to say about how can how you can reprimand or how you can、um, point to the fact that behaviour is slightly undesirable or could be better, but all too often the, our strengths can be over or underplayed to our detriment. You know, and the idea is if you have, for example, my top character strength in theory is kindness. But this means I have a real difficult time saying no to people when I really should.、Mm-hmm. So this is me overusing my strength, actually, to the level of weakness. Let's say, or let's take the strength of humour. You know, maybe there's a really funny kid in the class, but sometimes he's just too funny at the wrong time, wrong place. So if we can begin to reframe undesirable behaviour as strengths which are being under or overplayed. Or strengths which are entirely missing at any given moment, we're, we're avoiding going towards veering towards the negativity, the negativity bias. Remember, when people are attacked by the negativity bias, their vision is just tunnel vision; they can't see more possibilities. On the other hand, when we experience positive emotions, we're much more creative. We're much more open to exploration, to possibilities. So, I would really try to frame any kind of improvement conversation in terms of strengths missing or strengths being under or overplayed. Wow, this is so powerful! You literally just give me like a like a mental shift, right? And、uh, so, what you are saying is, so everything there's like. Double-sided, right? There's the the pros and the cons. So oftentimes, you know, I love the example you give us, like humor and the kindness. And how about I don't know if this I don't want to put you on the spot, but I don't know if this is a bad example. But like as children grow, as their cognitive like start like ability starts to become more advanced and sophisticated,、mm-hmm. so when a kid starts to lie to you, right? Not supposed to be playing games. But did or not supposed to eat that piece of chocolate? But lied to you. I did. So, like in a situation like that, and how, how can we handle? I'm sure this is like a situation that many parents can relate to. Absolutely.、Uh, you know, I would I would look at imagination. So this isn't creativity. It's one of the strands. Okay, it's one of the listed strands, strongly connected to that imagination. So I wonder, depending on the lie, is this the overuse of a very active imagination? Is there any way in which we can look to channel this overly active imagination into something really creative? You know, I, I guess it really depends on the kind of lie and the context, the time and place. But also, you know, to begin to speak about these things very openly and to think about the motivation behind the lie. All too often, you know, kids are repressing some kind of negative emotion behind that. What I feel very strongly about is destigmatizing negative emotions. Just like we're teaching our children a language around strengths, so too should we be teaching them a language around emotions. 
we should be modeling what we're thinking, what we're feeling, being very open about this so that young people understand that there is no shame in experiencing negative emotions. You, you know, I, I look back to school days and I know we've had conversations about our school experiences. I, and I think at no single moment did any teacher mention the word strength, mention the word emotions. You know, it was kind of robotic. And that takes away the fact that we're human beings. And I guess so much of positive psychology, it's looking to put that very humanness back into, into psychology. And that comes, you know, with that comes the acceptance that it's okay not to be okay. And I think probably that's my biggest takeaway from positive psychology. Yeah, I love this. And this is such, again, a really good idea because we are so fixated on seeing this as a problem, right? Like even like lying, you know, those things. But I never realized, wow, you are actually quite creative. So really interesting to, you just opened my mind to see the situation in a very different way. So here is a, a great comment from Lance joining us live from Australia so late, early in the morning. Thank you. And he said, shared that regularly ask people what is the best thing that happens to you this week. Most people struggle to answer for sure, for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. That, that is really true. And I, I love that. And actually, it makes me think of something that I tend to do in meetings or with classes. It's really nice to begin, you know, a meal at home or a class with asking people, what are the three best things that happened to you today? What are three things you're grateful for? What are three things you're proud of or looking forward to? And as this gentleman says so succinctly, it, it can be very difficult at first. But the more you start to look for these things, the more you begin to prime yourself to see them. And it's kind of connected to the gratitude journaling, isn't it? Which I know we've had a conversation about. But this idea that just by looking for three good things at the end of each day, after two weeks, you can go from the 15th to the 50th by zero percentile of well-being, you know. So gratitude is significant. But as the gentleman says, it's, it doesn't come naturally to very many people. So we've got to begin to really make ourselves see that which is good. I love it. It's almost like building our muscle for gratitude, right? I think that is something I learned with my own children every day. I will be asking them, especially by the end of the day, we'll do a journal reflection. Mm -hmm. And what is something that you feel really grateful for today, right? What have something good? And I also start to use like even some of those like negative self-talks, negativity bias that you shared with us. I actually start to use some of them to myself because we all have lots of baggage that yeah. we have to, you know, unprocess and do the damage. So I love, I feel like every tip you shared with us can also be applied to who we are right Absolutely. I, I, yeah i have to stress this isn't just for children like this is equally for parents because you know a parent's well-being is going to have a significant influence on, on their child's well-being too and, and i like the fact you say that this really is is a muscle it kind of points you know it comes back to the whole neuroplasticity thing neurons that fire together wire together mm -hmm. so very simply every time you have a thought every time you do something every time you say something 
The next time you do it, think it, say it, it becomes faster, quicker, more automatic, which really kind of points to the whole growth mindset. You know, you were speaking about what can we do to address weakness and the likes. Let's make it very clear to children that skills, talents, these things can be developed over time. You know, the growth mindset shows us this and the growth mindset is a greater predictor to success than any intellectual ability by itself. And I know that so much of the work, the amazing work you do, I sort of is based around this. Totally. And that's why, you know, I love what you do. And also like my program, we actually talk about like the brain science, right? Like neurons that wire together, fire together, fire together, wire together. Right. Yeah, 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 totally. And uh, what I discovered from my own learning is repetition is the mother of all learning as the saying goes, right? If I learn something, like even after today's interview, I'm already learning so much. But if I don't repeat, I don't revisit this, I don't relearn this, teach myself, I will just forget everything you share with me. So I think I'm learning this to implement on my own children. You know, it develop, takes time to develop a habit and takes time to actually internalize the knowledge. So repetition, repetition is like the key. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah, it, it really is. And I think people don't have a problem with that when thinking about education. But people often do have a problem thinking about it when it comes to habits that can lead to well-being. I think people sort of think that happiness is the natural state of human beings. So if we're not happy, there's something wrong with us. But I think people have to accept that this takes some dedication. It takes some effort. It takes some mental training, you know, and to become more emotionally agile. All of these things, they require time and patience and constancy, like any skill. And we can really develop our skill of, of well-being and happiness. And that's So are you saying, that's such a great point, are you saying that being happy is not a natural state? It is something that we have to constantly work on ourselves to get to that state. Is that what you are saying? To some degree, so so science shows that about fifty percent of our level of well-being, or sort of how happy or chirpy we are on a daily basis, that comes down to genes. Okay, so if, if you had happier parents and sort of happier families, perhaps you know you're in the lucky sort of group. But another ten percent is circumstance. You know, people tend to think that circumstance really affects how you are and how you feel. But there's this thing in psychology called hedonic adaptation. And basically, it means no matter what happens, however good or bad, in terms of circumstance, we come back to a certain kind of set point. So we've got 50% which is controlled by genes, 10% which is kind of circumstantial. But the other 40%, which is a significant percentage, really is within our volition. You know, we can choose to enhance our well-being. This is very much what we do proactively to turn it up if we choose. Wow, amazing, I love it. Learning so much. And so here's a great question. And before and after we answer this question, we're going to dive into the Prima framework, which is amazing. You should definitely you know, take some notes as we discuss that framework in a few minutes. So here's a great question from Pooja and join us live from India. Thank you so much, my friend. And so she wants to ask, you know, how can parents encourage their children to pursue what they are passionate about mm -hmm. rather than giving them a box? Oh my God, what a classic question, yeah. right? Yeah. Instead of projecting my own dreams and wishes into my own children, mm -hmm. but actually letting them to be who they are. So how can we do that? 
I love this question. And I, I, you know, this is the kind of question I work with with children, with adults, and I think it's a brilliant question. First of all, I would definitely think about character strands. I think it's really great to know, you know, how, in what way you, you are at your best, in what way you shine. So it's also great to think about talents, to get children to think about the moments in life when they enter into what we call the flow state. And we're going to look at this more in a minute in the PERMA model. But basically, when you're in flow, you're doing something that is neither too easy nor too difficult. It's like an optimal challenge, okay, whatever you're doing. And you're so absorbed in what you're doing that you lose all sense of self and all sense of time. So you could be singing, dancing, writing, playing a video game, anything. The activity can be almost anything. It doesn't usually, it's not usually a passive activity. It's usually something that you're actively engaged with. So it's really interesting from a parent's perspective to observe and to get your child to think about those moments when they just lose themselves, they're caught up in the activity mm -hmm. they're doing. Okay, so think about the moments of flow. Think about the kind of strengths that enable them to get into these moments of flow. And then think about the kind of gifts that that gives your child and what society needs. So it's kind of thinking about, you know, what really makes you shine, what your talents are, and how you can entwine these things and really offer this in some kind of way to the world. Um, there are plenty of exercises you can do to sort of bring this conversation up and to start thinking about this. But I would absolutely, as a starting point, recommend taking the strength survey. I think that is that is the beginning. That's it. That is the homework of the day for everyone mm -hmm. doing us live or watching the replay. So make sure you do the, the strengths, you know, the value in action survey. I will definitely do it myself and ask my children to do it. And I love what you mentioned, which actually reminds me of, uh, let me share my screen again. Uh, Ikigai or Ikigai exactly. concept, right? Like figure out what you are really good at. As you mentioned, Lisa, like what does our society also needs mm -hmm. and will actually pay you to receive your, your product or service. So it is such a great way to think about our strengths and, you know, and design a career based on how good we are and what are the things that we are good at and when based on that flow state that you are talking about mm -hmm. but it's so sad you know as i'm listening to you oftentimes we don't really observe our children when are in the flow we observe them when they are stuck right and then we try to intervene do something about it so they can unstuck i think that should be a big takeaway at least it's a big takeaway for me right now for everyone watching this live or on replay like actually spend more at least an equal amount of time observing when your children are actually in the flow as opposed to you know like focusing so much on the stock state. Yeah, I love it. That's sorry, I, I think that's really, really powerful. And I think it's really good to start thinking about this concept of intrinsic motivation. Mm -hmm. So when are your children motivated because they love what they're doing and it comes from the inside of them, as opposed to when are they motivated because they think they're going to get some kind of reward for what they've done? You know, we want to aim for that intrinsic motivation. And I think it's really important to say that we know in psychology that optimal motivation needs three things so think about how you and, and for your children and for yourself how you can really give people the conditions of autonomy connectedness and competence so kids need to feel autonomous they need to feel free in their decisions so they're choosing to do this activity 
They need to feel connected to others where possible and they need to feel really competent. So what can you do to really help them gain these three things? Because that's going to lead to that intrinsic motivation. And from that intrinsic motivation, you're going to see your child in that state of flow. And that is a really powerful state and it points to where people's skills and talents are, you know, those innate skills and talents. Because the very cool thing about flow is that you are always getting better, you know? It's this optimal challenge and you keep trying and you keep learning. The other thing to know about flow is if your child can get feedback from that which they're doing, it can really help stay in that state because what isn't good for flow is interruptions. So if you're constantly interrupting your child or kind of chipping in, you know, you're not going to help them to get there. They need to be left alone in the space, in the zone, and that is a great place to be. Oh my God, I feel that's why the traditional education model never worked for me. Not only do my teachers constantly interrupt me, they're constantly yelling at me, they're yeah. their eyes like, oh, oh, what are you, like, you're being watched all the time, you know, you you activated that reptilian brain, you already yeah. under the fight, flight, that's like, it. that's not the time for me to be creative. But anyway, so we got some really great questions. I think this uh, those questions are a great way to really start talking about the uh, P-E-R-M-A model. So Rachel asked, you know, how can we inspire positive minds in others? And there was also another great question from Lance and asking like uh, as a teacher, a tutor, a presenter, and also a grandpa, amazing grandpa, how can we better build positivity into our subjects? And uh, so like, I wonder, uh, can like, I feel like those two questions are similar. So yeah. can we use the, the Prima, a Prima, is that how to say it? Prima, exactly, Prima, yeah. Yeah, so how can we use this approach to kind of answer both of their questions and you can explain the five elements. I feel like yeah. understanding that framework will help us answer both of those two questions and approach this better. You're absolutely right. And thank you. They're great questions. Okay, so what we know from positive psychology is that the central framework to positive psychology is PERMA, the acronym PERMA, and that stands for positive emotions, engagement, relationships, meaning and accomplishment. And the idea is if we get a little of each of these five, we're going to have a happy and fulfilled life. This in theory is the key to well-being. Now, if we get a little of each of these five, we're also going to become more resilient. The natural output to PERMA is resilience, okay? So in terms of positivity, the questions are kind of focused around positivity. And positive emotions are really important, but so too are the next four. So I kind of feel like we need to focus on all of the five. If I may, I'll share with everyone watching a little bit of the research around each, if that's okay. And then maybe we can reflect on some ways to actively bring them into, into life. To totally. My audience is like super smart. We love learning more about research, right, everyone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely sure. Okay, perfect. So positive emotions. It's this idea that every time we experience a positive emotion, our minds literally expand in the sense that our peripheral vision grows. We see things we didn't see before. 
we become more open to more people, to more opportunities. So in turn, these new people, these new opportunities lead to further positive emotions. So it is this upward spiral of positive emotions. And for anybody who's interested, you can check out the research of Dr. Barbara Fredrickson, okay? She's the person who does a lot of research and investigates this subject. Now, she has found that the emotional, psychological and physical benefits to positive emotions are incredible. You see, scientists used to wonder, well, why do positive emotions exist? It's very clear that negative emotions, they give us this tunnel vision, they make us react to what's going on so that we can survive. But scientists were really baffled, well, what is the purpose of these positive emotions? But as I say, they open us up to new people, new opportunities, new experiences. Not only that, but positive emotions or positive emotional states are really good for our immune system in the sense that when we're experiencing, experiencing a negative emotion, our immune system is temporarily suppressed and that's really bad, okay? Wow. Yeah, it's, there's some really in, interesting and kind of new and very convincing research around this showing that experiencing negative emotions in the long term can really lead to increased inflammation in the body, which is associated, you know, with a whole host of disease. Um, of diseases. So I think it's really important to know that negative emotions were made to be very short and to come and go so that we reacted and we carried on. Now, positive emotions do quite the opposite. You know, they're great for our minds, great for our bodies. And there was a fascinating study known as the NUN study, where researchers looked at the testaments nuns had written upon entry to the convent. So when they were very young nuns and about to go into the convent life, and they looked at what the nuns had written, okay? And the nuns were uh, categorized into two groups. There was the group that was high in positive emotional words and the group that was quite a bit lower in positive emotional words or neutral language. They went back um, around 60 years later and they found that 40% of the nuns in the lower positive emotional group had already died. And on average, yeah, it's, it's pretty incredible. And on average, the nuns in the group with the higher positive emotions live for around 10 years longer. So there was a significant correlation between number of positive emotions or positive emotional language shown in these testaments. I think that the testament's the right word, some kind of document they had to fill in upon entry to the convent. Yeah, so there was so it's incredible. And I'm not saying that positive emotions can cure everything, but they do something very powerful to the mind and to the body. Wow, that's so powerful. And I love and uh I think it was um so Puja shared, right, according to the Gallup study in like two years ago, almost 90% of the workers are disengaged at their work globally, right? And uh, so this also reminds me, you know, going back to what you just shared, Lisa, the negative emotions. I think I shared this last week, but I want to share the study again. This was a study that came out earlier this year, uh, uh, January 30. And so this study is based on students' uh, overall feelings about high school uh, U.S. students, and they discover like 70% of students are feeling really negative about their school. Yes. And uh, it was really fascinating. And I, I can share the link if you are interested. And among the students, the mm -hmm. among all the negative emotions, and top one is stress, and the second one is uh, tired, and then another one is bored. So now I'm listening to you thinking about how positive emotions are 
affecting our health, you know, living longer, all those things. And then negative, no, no wonder students are having so many, you know, physical issues and mental health issues. It makes oh, so much sense. Absolutely. I, and, and as you just mentioned, you know, it's really counter to creativity. So, so when you experience positive emotions, you become more creative. You know, when you're in flow, more parts of the brain are communicating. So you're able to become much more creative to see solutions you didn't see before. So, you know, all of these students who are bored, who are tired, who are stressed, who are anxious under these effects of negative emotions, there's no way they can be as creative. And I know that so much of your work centers around the fact that creativity is a major skill that you know kids are going to need moving forward. So the education system really isn't serving them in that way. And, and it also curiosity, you know, how often were you encouraged to be curious as a student? I know that I never was. Yeah, like school tends to kill that curiosity and creativity, right? Stop asking questions, listen, obey. You become so obedient as opposed to be curious. So I have a question, yeah, Lisa. So if positive emotions are so good and uh, like negative emotions are not so good, but when we do have negative emotions, like nowadays, as I mentioned earlier, you know, especially since COVID, suicide rate has increased a lot among teenagers and young adults. So when people do experience, and even for like old people like us, older people like us, <laughs> so when we do experience negative emotions, how can we regulate that and quickly get out of that state and to enter, to become more resilient? So how can we do that? This is a brilliant question. And sorry, then I'll go on to tell you about the other aspects of PERMA too. Um, negative emotions. So, so again, I wouldn't ever label an emotion good or bad. Quite simply, every single emotion that exists, exists for a reason. Our emotions have evolved over centuries and centuries. And the fact is they're all still here. So every emotion exists for a reason. I really love the work of Dr. Susan David. She does a lot of work around emotional agility. And she talks about the fact that, first of all, we've got to understand what an emotion is. And an, and an emotion is simply our mind and our body reacting to tell us what we should do in a situation in response to our surroundings. Okay, so when something happens around us, our mind and our body starts to react, starts to give us a sign of what we should do for like an optimal outcome. So in some ways, an emotion is nothing more than information. It's a road sign, let's say. And just as we're driving down the street and we see a road sign, we get to choose whether we follow that sign or not. So first of all, we know that an emotion is information. Now, what we have to decide to do is whether we're going to express this or repress this. And what Susan David also talks about is the fact that every time we repress an emotion, it just grows stronger and stronger and stronger inside of us. And that is very detrimental for reasons we've just spoken about. Okay, so what we need to learn to do is to express the emotion as clearly and articulately as possible, as succinctly as possible. We've got to try to choose the word. So are you enraged or are you angry or are you furious? You know, you've got to choose exactly the word because the idea is the moment you articulate the word, the, word, the, the state, the, the emotion begins to lose some of its control, some of its power over you. You might wonder why that is. 
The fact is, human beings need to make sense of things, okay? We're sense-making creatures. It kind of, it's kind of like the fact that we tend to dream about the things that we haven't resolved in our life. Our subconscious is always trying to make sense of things. So the moment we say the word, the moment we put a narrative to it, it begins to lose some of its control over us. So I think this is why it's really important for parents to really teach their children a language around emotions you know, not to, and not to silence the emotion and not to try to tell them, oh, no, it's OK. It doesn't matter. You've really got to explore what this feels like and also to destigmatize and say, you know, it's normal to feel angry. It's normal to feel ashamed, whatever the negative emotion is. But again, the freedom comes through expressing and not repressing that emotion. Oh, I love that. You know, oppress it or express it like so, so powerful. Yeah. So we discussed the first one. I, I'm just watching time because this is, I know you and I, we can just talk about this forever. Right. Yeah, so the first one is uh, positive emotions. So P-E-R-M-A, that's the model we're talking about here, everyone. So P stands for positive emotions and uh, E stands for engagement. So can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. So we mentioned briefly earlier this idea of being in flow. So this is when you're doing something where you're so absorbed, you're so lost in that moment that you forget about yourself, you forget about the time. And this can be in any kind of activity, as I mentioned earlier, but usually it's one where you're intrinsically motivated. This is a really good state for human beings because the prefrontal cortex is kind of deactivated at this time. So people stop being worried and anxious. Um, they're not thinking about what others are, are saying about them or thinking about them. There's no kind of rumination. You just, you lose sense of time, you know, which is great for human beings because human beings have this tendency to leap into the future. We're very future oriented and that evokes worry and anxiety. But we know so much from studies around mindfulness that when you're in the present moment most of the time you're not suffering so being in flow is a perfect way to to really feel that to to reap the benefits of those moments and also you know to hone your skills and to feel engaged um, if you can get more of these moments at work if you can help your students your children have more of these moments once again you'll find where true talent and passion lies well, wow, that's interesting. What do you mean by our prefrontal lobe is actually dis deactivated? I thought when you are kind of in the flow state, isn't that the time that we're actually engaging our executive functioning brain or no? There's a little less activity from what I understand. And that means I, I don't know exactly which parts of the brain are connecting more, but there is a certain connection. There are more connections that are taking place. I'm afraid that the neuroscience behind the state, I don't know too much about, I'm afraid. But, but it's this idea that the, the rumination part or the self-conscious part of our minds is being deactivated. Mm -hmm. So that, that's how we lose ourselves so freely. Mm -hmm. And that's why having the time, the space, the concentration is really, really important. Mm -hmm. And why, you know, sort of criticism or feedback too quickly or too soon can really interrupt. Yes. Yeah, almost like uh, like in that uh, meditative state, right? You, you are in the flow, you lose 
track of time and space. Yeah, like my kids, if they are doing things they really enjoy, even myself, I'm like, oh wow, three hours have gone. I yeah. didn't even realize that. So yeah. I can see why you know our just the analytical executive functioning brain is not as active. Active, yeah. But I know for sure the reptilian brain when we are in that flow state. The reptilian brain must be deactivated, right? Because we're yeah. In <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think this is a really powerful state, and it's you know it's great to observe yourself when you get into the state because again, it's becoming mindfully self-aware of where you are, the kind of activities that get you to this place, so that you can do them on a more often basis. You can do them more regularly to sort of feel more engaged. Engagement is a major part of satisfaction of life satisfaction. You know, as is positive emotions, but the engagement bits there. Totally, totally. And uh, I, this is something like I, you are so knowledgeable, Lisa. And this is something that I really realized as an educator that I never learned, even though I got a master's degree, I never learned like how people learn and this deeper level of, you know, don't interrupt that flow state and how our brain works. You know, the reptilian brain, the prefrontal lobe, the limbic system. It is something that I learned later. I was like, oh my gosh, such an eye-opening experience for me to understand in order to be a better teacher or trainer or mom. It's like, why I never learned this in my PhD. Yeah. Like, that's it, that's it. I, I think, you know, we've got to give people the skills to understand themselves, you know, on, on a very basic level, but because so many people lack the most basic level of self-awareness and without that self-awareness you're never going to have real great levels of well-being or happiness because you don't know how to get there and what I love about this framework to PERMA is there are some very practical and tangible ways that we can seek this out but you know we, we've got to be proactive about it but it requires a level of introspection thinking about your thinking you know yeah. yeah, and then when you look at, you know, I'm just thinking about children when they're in their flow, like my children, they're really into drawing, like if they are really in the flow, they can be drawing for an hour, sometimes two or three hours. But when you look at the traditional classroom structure, it's like 45 minutes, yeah. there's that really like annoying bell, like everyone hears it, like, right, and you, you, you immediately dive into the other class without yeah. adjusting your brain, your brain still probably thinking about what's happening in the other class, right? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We, yeah, we need that time to switch off to, to become creative. You know, it's, it's that idea that we have some of our best ideas when we're in that very relaxed state, you know, in the, the whole shower moment, the aha moments, isn't it? We do need those kind of states to begin to process. And that's when we begin to sort of connect ideas and we become more creative and have those moments of revelation. So I think children do need these mindless as well as mindful moments. Yeah, I love it. I wish, unfortunately, you don't really get that much. Yeah, you know how much I love traditional. <laughs> right? Yeah. So we discussed positive emotions and engagement. So what is our positive relationships, right? So explain that to us. Brilliant. So this is the greater, greatest predictor of all to human well-being, um, positive relationships. What does it mean to have a positive relationship? It means in general that people also tend to have better health and, and greater longevity. They found that loneliness is as dangerous for people as smoking. So I mean, you know, we're, we're wired for that kind of human connection. Interestingly, the human touch, there was, a, there was a piece of research where researchers looked at people who submerged their hands in ice cold buckets. And if they put their hand in the cold, in the ice cold, but had 
another human being just hold their hand, their physiological response to stress was so very different. It was decreased. So just the power of the human touch and human connection, it's immense, you know. Um, and there's, there's something that I really love. It's something so simple, but I don't think we do this often enough. And maybe for parents, this can be a nice activity to try or for teachers. Um, there's something called active constructive responding. And very basically, I don't know whether anybody will have heard of this, but if I say to you, I say, oh, I've just got a new job I've got, or a new, I've got a promotion at work, what would you say to me? Congratulations! <laughs> Absolutely. And that is great, but that is where most people stop. Now, the idea is when people share positive news, we're not generally very good at helping them savor that moment, relish that moment. And this is a real wasted opportunity because, again, positive emotions are so powerful. We want people to relive these experiences as much as possible. And in theory, the greatest predictor to the success and longevity of any relationship, it's not determined by how things are handled when times get tough if not the degree to which people actively constructively respond and hold the space for that person to really savor, explore and relive those positive emotions. Wow. So what should we say instead? Give me some ideas. <laughs> After 40 years, I finally learned how to congratulate people. So teach us. Congratulations is a really good start. But the idea is you would say to me, wow, that's amazing. So tell me more about it. Mm. What exactly did your boss say? What were the reasons for the promotion? Really getting a person to link what they've just shared with their strengths, with their values, with their abilities, sort of really helping a person savor and relish mm. the behind that which has happened you know um, and this is you know for children too to do with our children I think it's a really lovely way making it's really kind of stretching out the positive states for as long as possible because we know that positive emotions come and go very quickly they're fleeting by nature so what can we do to really savor these moments and active constructive responding is one of the best ways Oh, wow. That's so powerful. I just realized how often we actually give other people like empty, like, you know, like appraises, like, hey, good job, you know. And but like as you are asking people to repeat, they're activating all the senses again, relieving the emotions. And yeah, that's, I love this. I'm going to change how I congratulate people and even my own children to get more details. Yeah, I love it. I this really is great. And you also, uh, I know we're running out of time, but I really want to talk about this briefly. And uh, you also mentioned a little bit about watching TV and how that is kind of more so like a pa passive, maybe that we should discuss this in the last point, but a passive state. So, so what do you think about like watching TV? Like should we like limit it completely? Like how many hours and uh, explain that. I mean, it's, yeah, I don't know in terms of hours or like whether you should or shouldn't watch TV. But what I do know is that research says that your brain is in a similar state to a person who's depressed when they're watching television. You're certainly not getting into flow because flow, it really needs some kind of engagement. Television, it's not actually generally very engaging for most mm -hmm. people. So I would encourage instead of TV where possible. Okay, so you don't have to ban television. It's not that bad. But at the same time, it's just not conducive to these peak psychological states. 
It's just not. So I would instead be thinking about what kind of activities do get you into the flow state and maybe look to substitute some of that television time instead. Because once again, you'll be honing your talents by doing so. Yeah, especially now the TV shows and you thought you were watching a TV show, but actually you were bombarded by all those, you know, like commercials, you know, fix your face, fix your nose, fix your, you know, whatever part of your body. And yeah. then you just feel so bad about yourself, right? So yeah, I so agree. We don't even watch any TV. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. So we have only a few minutes left. Let's talk about M and then wrap it up with A. So M means meaning. M is for meaning, and this is about finding a purpose in life. And I think, you know, you might be aware, people might be aware of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And at the top of that hierarchy, we used to believe was self-actualization. But what many people didn't realize was actually in the research which was discovered after Maslow's death, he was talking about the fact that self-transcendence came after self-actualization. So it's this idea that human beings need to reach the emotional, psychological best version of themselves. But once they've reached this place, and what you don't get there and stay there, but when you get a glimmer of this, it's a natural instinct to want to give back, to reach beyond yourself, you know. We only find meaning in general out of ourselves. So meaning is about interaction with other people. It's about making a difference. It's about making people's lives a little bit better in some way. And I think it's really important that we do find that sense of purpose. And Ellen Langer, um, Dr. Ellen Langer, she did a lot of research into this with old people in a nursing home and two floors of old people. One floor um, were given a plant that they had to water themselves and the other floor were given a plant but were told, don't worry, the nurses will water this plant for you. And she found some compelling evidence to see that that sense of purpose, albeit just watering a plant, could keep people alive for longer. Now, this research was contested just a little bit, but there were still some pretty powerful findings into this as to, you know, the power of having however small a sense of purpose. And I think we need this. And I don't think it's ever too young to start getting your children to think about their purpose, you know, giving back. Let's think about it as how do we give back in some way and go beyond ourselves and our own ego because nobody's happy when life's just about them. Wow, this is so powerful. It also reminds me of so many studies that I read in the corporate setting when employees are actually are informed on the bigger purpose of the existence of the organization and they are more motivated, more dedicated to their job and overall the, that helps the organization's bottom line. So I think the yeah. same thing, you know, it really makes me think. But like, I, like many children, like not even young children like i i work so we do a mixed age models so i work with young kids you know college age students many of them come to me like lost they still don't know what their purpose is and sometimes even older people like 40 50 years old people and they still don't know like what is my calling in life so are there uh exercises i feel most people they are their heart is asleep very numb they're in a numb state so what are some things that we can do to reactivate the, our human existence? Yeah. 
I, I think it's really important to say, I, I don't think there's just one purpose or one calling or one vocation, but I think instead we've got to think about it as what are our fundamental strengths and talents and values and passions that will evolve, will change over time, and perhaps will serve the world in different ways at different times. So, you know, there's some really fascinating research which points to the fact that people can perceive their job in one of three ways. So they can think that it's a, a job, so just a, a way to make money, you know, or a career in terms of social status, in terms of power and prestige, or a vocation, a calling in terms of work that is powerfully aligned with who they are and gives back in some way. And the really interesting thing is it doesn't matter what kind of job you do. It's how you think about this. And um, something really powerful called job crafting that people can look into and it shows us that no matter what your job what work you do you can make significant tweaks which can powerfully reframe how you experience that work and if you can experience your work as a vocation the emotional and psychological benefits are, are pretty profound actually and it you know it comes back to something you just said there about getting workers to see the bigger picture so Adam Grant Dr Adam Grant did a lot of uh, research around this that you might be aware of and he found that as you say if you could connect people not only to the, the end product but to the why of what they're doing so for example he found that people who were making calls to try to get money to help students who from deprived families who didn't have money to go to college he found that these people who were making calls if they could see the photograph and have a little bit of the bio the backstory of the person they were going to be significantly more likely to raise the necessary funds because it's all about that human connection it's all about that self-transcendence and that is a very powerful motivator for human beings so if we can identify the way in which we doing our job makes other people's lives just a tiny bit better the emotional and psychological benefits are going to be you know, out, out of this world, I think. Wow, I love this. I love this. And, uh, oh, my God, I'm definitely going to apply this to my own teaching, kind of help things, you know, help things off and to show them, hey, there's actually bigger reason that you are doing this. Oh, so, 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 so powerful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I think that's why we call this, you know, the human H to H, right? Human to human, as opposed to the, the traditional B2B or B2C, but actually human to human, right? We connect much better at human level. Yeah, yeah. Finally, let's quickly talk about the last last one. I definitely want to let you go. I know it's late in the UK time zone. So mm -hmm. thank you. So the last one is accomplishment. So let's quickly talk about that. And by the way, everyone, I have been sharing uh, Lisa's website on the screen. So feel free to check her out. I have also been sharing her LinkedIn. You see how amazing she is. Yeah. Thank you very much. That's really kind. I appreciate that. Um, so finally, we've got the A for accomplishment. And it's all about achieving goals that are meaningful to you. Okay. So goals that are powerfully aligned with who you are. Now, there's an exercise that I really love, which I'm happy to share with anyone. And it's called the best possible self exercise from positive psychology a lot of research behind it because what i think is really important before you think about individual goals is thinking about your compelling future vision that you're moving towards and a simple exercise it's to take three consecutive days back to back and begin to write begin to write in the present tense so like you're living it now 
what your life is like. You can choose the time frame. It can be one year, it can be five years, it can be 10 years. But you need to really evoke that emotion. And to do that, you've got to use the present tense, okay? The mind responds really well to that. And you will see the first day, it might feel a little bit difficult, but the second day, it could flow a bit more. And the third day, I think you'll start to get more of a sense of your shiny, compelling future vision. Once you've got that vision, you can begin to think what it's going to take to break that vision down into tangible goals. And somehow then this vision becomes much more doable. It becomes kind of more real. Um, it's this idea, again, that we're looking for that intrinsic motivation. So if you find yourself thinking of should and must and have to, these words are major warnings that there's some extrinsic motivation going on here. It's really connecting, you know. And if you do the strengths exercise, if you do the values exercise, if you begin to get a real solid sense of who you are and where you want to go, the rest just becomes planning, you know. You're thinking how you can get from A to B. And, you know, you start to think about some of the emotional agility and the, and the negative emotions. Think about the tools to get to where you want to be. And I think, you know, it, you're going to get that instant boost to well-being, to motivation, and self-efficacy, you know, you're going to believe you have the power to do it. Again, you know, it's that neurons that fire together, wire together. Let's, you know, the power of a vision, it's kind of like you're rehearsing the future in your mind, but suddenly one day you'll notice, oh, hang on, it's actually here, it's real. So. Oh my God, I love this so much. And I actually, I do this every day. And I noticed that after I started to practice more, this type of visualization or journaling, as if everything I wanted already happened, and my business really started to shift. And I, I started to have people, hey, like just like random people, like they wanted to work with you. It's like, wow, where, where do you even come from? So I just use a really simple book. People use fancy books and just like my positive affirmation. I use kind of different colors. I already right. finished a few books. This is a new one I just started. I love this. Everyone should give this a try. So I, I'm recently, I'm reading this book. I forgot the name. But this is something I learned from that book, Positive Affirmation. I have a wonderful business in a wonderful way. I do wonderful service for wonderful pay. Everyone, you should take a screenshot of this. I have been repeating this when I'm taking a shower, when I take a walk. It rhymes really well. You can make a song out of it. So I love it. Yeah. yeah I really right. love Because you're getting yourself into that positive state, aren't you? That feels so good. That's it. Absolutely. And you know, great things happen because of that. You're noticing opportunities. You're priming yourself for the good things that could happen. And I think there's something that really works well in conjunction to the best possible self and the kind of thing that you're describing. And that's to create what we call a hope map. So the idea is you choose one of your concrete goals that you've identified from your vision. You put that on the right hand side of the page. You're thinking about this as a journey, okay? So you're going to think what you're taking in your backpack. What are the skills, the talents, the resources, the people? What is everything you can think of that could help you to get there? That's in your backpack. Then you're going to think about the different pathways to arrive to your goal. The idea is the more pathways you can think of, because all too often to get to our goal, it's going to take many more ideas and pathways than we could have imagined. As many different routes to your goal as possible. Then you're going to think about the kind of setbacks or obstacles that could happen along each one of those paths. 
And then you're going to think about the solutions to each one of these obstacles, okay? So you've got goal on the right-hand side. Maybe it's better if I share this in a diagram in a later moment. You've got your goal on the right-hand side. You've got your pathways on the left. You've got your obstacles and solutions in the middle. And the idea is you just begin to create that sense of self-efficacy, you know, that you really can bring about that behavior, those changes that you need to make. And, you know, you'll start to become more creative. You'll look for solutions. But again, it's training the mind, isn't it? And that takes time and constancy. But as you're proving, ah, you can do remarkable things as you are doing Totally. I mean, you're, you, you're right. You're so spot on, Lisa, is, you know, training our mind. Like I used to have lots of negative self-talk. I, I didn't even see that, right? It was just part of my identity. It's like the, the, the air I'm breathing in. I don't see it. But now after I did lots of work in this area, like I can immediately catch myself when I start to, okay, think very negatively, like doubting myself. I would like stop yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> I will move to a different. I literally tell myself, I stop it. You don't yeah. have time. You are not available for this yeah. thought. So I yeah. move on. And uh, this was such a, a personal milestone for me that I wasn't able to do. So everything Lisa has been sharing with us works like miracles. I so agree. Thank you so much. And I love what you've just said. And if anyone's sort of interested in all the ways in which your brain can trick you, please take a look at something called thinking tracks, okay? Mm -hmm. There are about 12 ways in which your brain can really trick you and make you think things that aren't true. And, and just to add to what you've said, I, there's a, a researcher who does a lot of work around self-compassion. She's called Kristen Neff, and she has a really great TED talk around this. And she talks about the fact that if we spoke to our friends or relatives as we do to ourselves in our own <laughs> We probably right. have a lot, a lot of people around us. So again, it's really cultivating that kind of self-compassion. Um, you know, all too often we're, we're our own worst critic, aren't we? And we, you know, we've got to learn to hear. You see, this is the other thing, and I'm sorry because I know we're out of time. So the last thing I'll say: human beings have the tendency to believe that if they think something, it's true. That we tend to believe that every single thought we have, it's true. And it's not. And we need to get some separation from that thought. Even if I say, okay, Lisa, I'm having the thought that. Simply those few words, I'm having the thought that. I'm, I'm creating a distance between myself and the thought. And then I get to intercept and I get to choose whether I'm going to follow this thought and humor this thought or not. And that to me is quite powerful. Oh, wow. I love that. I love that. So I just did some... A quick research, I found these like thinking traps. There are 12, right? You mentioned Lisa? Yes. Yeah. So if you just Google this, uh, there are lots of infographic and articles. So I like, check out those 12 traps. Yeah. Amazing, my friend. Amazing. So share with us one more time. Where can they learn more about you and discover you? And this such I I really need to rewatch this and uh like re-educate myself because this is so powerful. So share with us. Thank you very much. Thank you. So you can find me at uh, www.thepositivepsychologist, all one word, .com. I'm also on LinkedIn quite a lot. So you can find me at Lisa Avery, Positive Psychologist. Um, or you can email me directly on hello at thepositivepsychologist.com. I'm happy to hear from anybody if I can help in any way. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you so much, everyone, for such a incredible 
conversation, I feel happier. I feel more confident and more competent after today's conversation. So definitely, and uh, especially if you are a parent, you know, watch this again, highly recommend. And thank you so much, everyone, for joining us live from all over the globe. I love you guys. I appreciate you so, so, so much. You all give me lots of positive energy. So thank you for spending a Friday evening or morning, afternoon or Saturday, early morning with us. I appreciate you. I hope to see you again next Friday or Saturday, the same time, same location. And a big thank you to our guest of honor, Lisa, for dropping so, so, so much value. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you so much, Ah. You're a massive inspiration. And thank you so much for having us. Thank you. <laughs> Bye, everyone. Bye.